Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a realm where reality intertwines with the inexplicable, where the boundaries of reason dissolve into the shadows of uncertainty. Welcome to the political twilight zone. I am your guide to this enigmatic labyrinth, where politics and power take on life of their own. In this dimension, the threads of truth weave a tapestry of intrigue, challenging our perception of the world we thought we knew. In this world, nothing is as it seems, and the truth lies buried beneath layers of deceit. Prepare to venture where reason meets the unexplained and where the unexplained might Welcome just back, be. Welcome back, everybody. Another week goes by. I appreciate you joining us here on KNZZ, KGLN, and the Internet. Uh, we are 1192.7, plus 101.3. I'm supposed to say that once in a while. And if you miss the show, you can pick it up on, well, a lot of the places. You can pick it up uh, off of the Amazon, off of iTunes, uh, a lot of places where podcasts are at, and just ask for uh, getting it right with Rick Wagner. And you can do it even easier by just going to our website and clicking on to the links, and it'll play the podcast for you. And, our, of course, our website is uh, com. Kind of simple. And you can get there and uh, take a look at a lot of the f- stuff we talk about here today and some other things, a lot of other things. I have a lot of uh, news sources up there. And I've been putting up uh, Tucker Carlson's uh, Twitter show. You know, he's uh, he does about 15 minutes or so, a little longer of a show, once or twice a week. And so I've been I figured out a way to put them up on the website. And so far, it's working. I mean, you know, I'm knocking on wood here. If I could reach my head, I would. Uh, <laughs> but and you know, I have that along with the uh, Victor Davis Hanson podcast that updates uh, three times a week too. So. Uh, there's there's a lot going on there, and uh, feel free to jump into it. Tucker's been doing some really interesting stuff on Twitter. Um, his you know it's essentially his his show. <laughs> He's sitting there. It's very very similar. But speaking of uh, shows, you guys I know watched. I, I'm joking because I think some of you watched the uh, Republican debate this week. If you want to call it a debate, uh, I don't know. It was just disappointing in the kind of a larger sense. Uh, and it's very telling to go from website to website and see the discussions about the debate. Some of them, the bigger ones, it seems like, are all over Chris Christie, rather on his side. Oh, he put that Vivek back in his place, you know, and uh, his camp, Vivek's campaign is over. And then you go to a couple other websites and it's just the opposite. You know, Vivek put uh, Christie at his place and called out Nikki Haley and, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's now very difficult to get a consensus, even from conservative sites. One of the things I don't like to see is them really tearing into other Republican candidates. I mean, it's fine to say, I think so and so did better, and I was a little disappointed in this, the other, but, you know, some of the, these characters are, you know, they're, they're harder on the Republican candidates than they are the Democrats. And of course, this has been our problem for a long time is we are quite willing to sacrifice our own, but we can never seem to get the other side to do anything like that. Well, look at what happened. We got rid of George Santos. We, I would say, Republicans. All fine and good. Not exactly a shining example of uh, governmental jurisprudence, would be, because he kind of touches on that with all of his legal problems. But at the same time, are the Democrats going to do that? Of course they're not going to do that. I mean, they've... Remember Charlie Rangel? 
He got censured. Same thing as Jamal Bowman did. Charlie Rangel, you know, had just a plethora of problems, mainly taxes. And, you know, and for years, they didn't really address them. And they've had other situations like that, and they're not going to chip away at their membership. And they're certainly not going to chip away at it when it would be so narrow like the one the Republicans have now. I'm not necessarily saying they should keep George Santos around, but it seems like a lot of our Republicans are very interested in taking the high ground so they can say, well, look what we did. Yeah, look what you did. Let's let's think about that. I mean, should he be there? No, not really. Uh, should you boot him out? Maybe, but let's not get all up on a high horse about it like, you know, you're the uh, don't go Mitt Romney on me. We're the last honest people. And, you know, no matter what the consequences. Yeah, that's all fine and good. Uh, but at the same time, we just had Jamal Bowman, uh, who was censured this week. Oh, that was tough. He was called down to the well of the House, you know, the f- area right in front of where the speaker's apparatus is. They uh, said, you are censured. Well, that'll take your head off, won't it? And, of course, he was surrounded by supporters. By supporters, I mean other members of Congress. And by that, I mean Democrats. Now, what is there to support with that character? We have video, verifiable video evidence. Anymore, you don't know. I mean, unless somebody's, you know, tested it to make sure it isn't doctored. But verifiable video evidence of the guy pulling a fire alarm during a critical vote when the Democrats were trying to hold the vote up. We have him walking up to the door that he says, well, I was trying to get the door open. And, and everybody's been through this. I mean, come on. It, it's, I don't know which is worse, uh, doing it or the pathetic excuse for why he did it, expecting people to believe it. But anyway, you know, he walks up to the doors. He removes the signs off the doors. And then, because remember his story is that he, he thought if he pulled the fire alarm, which as we all know, looks just like fire alarms all sorts of places, uh, it's not, you know, disguised in any way. He pulls the fire alarm and then not looking at the doors, he thought it might open. Remember that story? He just bolts out of the frame the other direction. So there you have it. And he gets, quote, censured. And, highly supported by a number of members of the Democrat Party. What are they supporting? Are, are are you thinking that, is he innocent of that? Is that your position? Is he uh, being railroaded for some reason? Is, uh, is ethnicity or race somehow at odds with what's happening here? I'd like to know what exactly they're doing when they're, quote, supporting him. Uh, it's, uh, when you stop and think about that, it just really gets under your saddle a little bit. No question about it. Anyway, so we've had a whole week of that kind of nonsense, I have to say. Uh, I, I couldn't watch those presidents of the prestigious universities, Harvard, University of Pennsylvania, MIT, discuss with Congress people, the House Representatives, whether or not calling for the elimination of Jews is somehow a violation of their speech code. Now, we all know that what violates your speech code is to show up and be a Republican. Uh, 
uh, or uh, have a number of beliefs that will be considered to be hate speech, some of which you wouldn't even cross your mind you thought were hateful. But nevertheless, those easy to identify. This, not so much. And I have seen some some waffling and weasel words, but these characters, these three women, these presidents, these universities, first of all, they didn't seem that smart to me. Secondly, is they acted like they couldn't understand the question. And I, I couldn't decide if they were just trying to prevaricate, you know, and deflect it, probably a little bit, or if in their world, asking something like that is, is, just shocks them. I mean, I got the feeling that in their mind, it was like, how could that be wrong? We all know that Israel is, you know, an occupier and all. And, and you would think that they're supposed to be educated. They would know a little better about some of that stuff. But that was kind of the feeling I got, that they were shocked that they were being called out for it. That this was just par for the course. That, of course, this is what people do. And, oh, the president of uh, UPenn, I think it was, McGill, you know, came out after everybody. And, I mean, a fair amount of people on both sides were like, this is this is objectionable. I mean, what, what are these people doing? She came out with this really ridiculous apology online. And, you know, people are calling for all three of them to be fired and this and that. And fine, fire them, but do you think that's going to change anything? you think they're the problem, or is it obvious that they're the symptom of the problem? Maybe they shouldn't walk away when it's so clear they don't understand their job or really the mission of the school, but getting rid of them is hardly going to be dispositive. Might be a step in the right direction. Okay, we're back. Hopefully we're not another day older and deeper in debt. Uh, let's see. I have some notes here since we were talking about our uh, lovely examples of, uh, ruling class at our very expensive public, uh, private institutions that receive just literally billions of dollars over the years, uh, in donations and grants and this, and that, all tax free. And this is what, this is what happens. And if you think they're turning out superior graduates, yeah, that's not so. I over the last few years, I've met a number of people from some of these schools, and uh, to say that they were not particularly remarkable. Now there are remarkable ones. Don't get me wrong, but mm, as is it some kind of high bar for all of them? No, it's no, it's not. Uh, their criteria for admission is well, it, it's not really intellectually based. Now, this year, Harvard, for instance, is uh, doing away with standardized testing results, you know, the old SAT. Uh, they're not going to take that as a, as a big qualifier to get in the school there. They're going to have you write essays and describe your journey uh, to their higher education so they can sort of ferret out what kind of person you are. And I don't think in a, in a way that we would like. And they also, I'm sure, want you to put little signals in there about your political leanings and things like that. And, you know, how many protests you organized at high school? Did you have any walkouts? You know, stuff like that. What is your basis for educational achievement, especially in this age of great inflation? I mean, it depends on where you go to school. I mean, if you go to a good charter school 
or you live in a very good school district, it's a lot harder to get A's and B's than some of these other places where it's just, hey, you showed up, that's already a B plus. Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, you left today, you didn't assault anybody, okay, A minus. So if you don't have standardized testing at the front end, really, uh, what sort of uh, educational bar- uh, barometer are you trying to, to use on your on your entering class? And I think you see what the what the result is. First, you see in behavior. Secondly, you see when they talk to them, they don't come across as, uh, you know, the elite of intellectualism. They a lot of them come off like, I've, uh, "Are you at? Are you in school? I mean, have you have you have you been to high school?" I mean, a lot of you folks out there, I'll tell you, the educational result out of many. Schools in America, many of them right around us, where you there's some other place that are right around you too, is so much less than it was 30 years ago. Much less what it would be like 40 years ago. Uh, an eighth grade education, probably in 1960, uh, puts you way ahead of many high school graduates now. Most probably. Do you, th- you think that's think that's helpful? Of course not. Now we're moving into artificial intelligence, which I think many of them think will be great because then what little thinking they're doing, they won't have to do even that. Something else will do it for them. That's the real danger with artificial intelligence is to just turn everything over to machine learning and then let it make its mind up based on the programming, not based on, you know, the sort of humanity thinking that we have going on with, you know, like... With the moral compass, huh. you know, there are still some out there. They're hard to find, and uh, True North is uh, apparently uh, situational with them. But nevertheless, what we have is uh, you know, a real danger then of turning pretty much everything that we do in terms of decision making over to something else. And if you let it be a lot smarter than you, and you don't make any effort to be on top of things, then how long before you just become part of a big machine because of the process? Uh, you're you're not really in charge of it. You're just part of it. That's what I worry about. Uh, as I said before, I think a couple of weeks ago, that the one of the f- sort of the early adopters and founders of artificial intelligence, who still works in it, said that what bothers him is that as the AI becomes more and more intelligent. In other words, able to reason faster, be able to reach conclusions, have more data available, and in a sense become more reasoning in what it's doing. It, in many ways, becomes smarter. Uh, I think that's a term we use a little too loosely, but that you know, that's kind of what he's saying. And he said what bothers him, and I've said this before, and I'm sure I'll say it again, is that he says, when I look around, the animal kingdom and the human race, I don't often see something smarter getting controlled by something dumber. <laughs> That's kind of true. And so we may not even know how this will turn out because, you know, the, the reasoning process that goes on with some of this machine stuff that I have no doubt will be running some things and some of it will be very beneficial. Don't get me wrong. I think that some of the applications 
of artificial intelligence and its incredibly fast processing speed and ability to compare things will be great in medicine and particularly in pharmaceuticals. Looking at chemical uh, combinations and comparing them to how they affect disease, things like that, come up with whole new, whole new approaches and maybe even uh, a whole new approach to some chemistry because of that. Yeah, I think that's going to be great. I also think there it will make good diagnosticians in some of these instances. Uh, and radiology, it's been shown to be very helpful to the radiologists, uh, even now. So yeah, I think that, I think there's plenty of that going on. But at the same time, we have a growing percentage of our population that just doesn't seem to want to think a lot. And when you offer it something to take that off their shoulders, I don't think a lot of them will do it. We already see there's a lot of people out there that I'm not even sure all that interested in freedom. They they want license. They want to be able to do the few things that they feel like doing. But uh, they're perfectly okay with being bossed around. We have always assumed that the majority of people don't want that. I think there's at least a significant minority that seems to. So you put all those things together, and you have to wonder what the shape of the future is going to look like. I, I really do wonder myself. I, I, I'm getting less and less able to picture it, you know, envision some end point. And I, I mean, I don't, I'm not comfortable with that. I'd like to have, you know, at least two or three scenarios that I feel like, you know, are possible. I, I am not even sure about that. I mean, I have one or two that I worry might be possible, but that's not quite the same. Anyway, we were talking about these, uh, Ladies from the uh, colleges, uh, someone wrote something that I thought was really interesting. And so I wrote it down. And I can't remember where I saw it exactly. Men in a spectator or something. But they referred to their uh, testimony and answer to questions as uh, an, an example of moral confusion. I like that. Moral confusion. It's not immorality, right? Or a lack of morality. It's a it's confusion about what you should be doing. Where should I be showing, you know, my compassion or having sympathy or, you know, what's moral and what's not moral? I mean, it is, it is, it is moral confusion. I really like it. And you can tell it because there apparently is nothing that they can be asked about, about some of these topics that they don't want to refer to the dreaded word of context. I think we need to have that in context. Context is important for many things. There are a few things that by themselves are so heinous that just doesn't need any context with it. It's just wrong. They don't seem to be able to find that. They're morally confused, just wandering around. They don't recognize it. Uh, in their day-to-day life, it, most of the time, it's very well laid out. There's like a manual there of this. We're in charge, you know, we agree with this, 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 this. It's a little little bit like the what we believe that you know religions have is that we believe A, B, and C, right? And their progressive philosophy is really almost exactly the same. They just don't have God involved in it. And so, when they're confronted with something that falls outside of that a little bit, they do get very confused, especially when they're afraid they're going to get in trouble with if they say what they really think. What well, we, we've come up with is schools out there that are emphasizing social skills or social indoctrination over objective work. The ability to objectively 
come to conclusions, to gather evidence and not have your conclusion predetermined. That seems to be disappearing from most of the disciplines. Uh, And when you don't have any standardized tests, how do you know if people even have the equipment to be to have an objective approach to things, you know, be able to gather information, understand the information, and then interpret it. So it becomes just a matter of social skills. Well, everybody else is doing it. Uh, and that gets to be the end of it. I mean, the schools, I remember I said that uh, Harvard and some of the others are getting away with standardized testing. They didn't want to do that. And I was reading that Harvard and I think Princeton both used to have a standardized test that they gave before admission so they could see how well you were doing. In fact, apparently they didn't just trust the SAT. I kind of like that idea. But, of course, that's been gone for quite some time now. Uh, we ought to bring these things back, I think, so that there at least is a bar people feel like they have to get over for all of our goods, for all of, all of our goods. Hi, folks. We're back. Hopefully uh, you're still with us here. Let's see, moving on to some things, uh, keeping in line with what we were talking about, sort of the uh, barbarians at the gate, or inside the gate kind of theory, uh, to go along with, you know, what's going on with schools and kids and all this stuff these days. I thought that, because I think many of you probably didn't hear this because you've had jobs and there's only so many ways to do it, but you probably heard a little bit on Fox News, but I thought it would be helpful uh, to get a idea of what's going on at these colleges by listening to the answers that these three, well, really four of them, but three mainly, college presidents of Harvard, uh, MIT, and uh, University of Pennsylvania. We'll take a listen to what uh, they had to say. I think it's it's really instructive, and especially if you're into uh, sort of spotting weasel words and then people who are wildly impressed with their own intelligence and yet don't seem to be able to understand what's going on around them. So here we go. This is from Congress. The first person, I, I can't remember which congresswoman she is, but after her questions, the rest are coming from uh, Stefanik from New York. Yes. Does M- At MIT, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate MIT's code of conduct or rules regarding bullying and harassment, yes or no? targeted at individuals not making public statements. Yes or no? Calling for the genocide of Jews does not constitute bullying and harassment? I have not heard calling for the genocide for Jews on our campus. But you've heard chants for intifada. I've heard chants, which can be anti-Semitic depending on the context, when calling for the elimination of the Jewish people. So those would not be according to the MIT's code of conduct or rules? That would be um, investigated of, uh, as harassment, if pervasive and severe. Ms. McGill, at Penn, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code of conduct? Yes or no? If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment. Yes. I am asking specifically calling for the genocide of Jews. Does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. That is not bullying or harassment. This is the easiest question to answer yes, Ms. McGill. 
So is your testimony it, that it, you will not answer yes? If it uh, is, if the, yes speech or becomes, no. if the speech becomes conduct, it can be harassment. Yes. Conduct meaning committing the act of genocide? The speech is not harassment? This is unacceptable, Ms. McGill. I'm going to give you one more opportunity for the world to see your answer. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's code of conduct when it comes to bullying and harassment? Yes or no? It can be harassment. The answer is yes. And Dr. Gay, at Harvard, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment? Yes or no? It can be, depending on the context. What's the context? Targeted as an individual, targeted as, at an individual. It's targeted at Jewish students, Jewish individuals. Do you understand your testimony is dehumanizing them? Do you understand that dehumanization is part of anti-Semitism? I will ask you one more time. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment? Yes or no? Anti-Semitic rhetoric. When it and is it anti-Semitic rhetoric? Anti-Semitic rhetoric when it crosses into conduct that amounts to bullying, harassment, intimidation, that is actionable conduct and we do take action. So the answer is yes, that calling for the genocide of Jews violates Harvard Code of Conduct, correct? Again, it depends on the context. It does not depend on the context. The answer is yes, and this is why you should resign. These are unacceptable answers across the board. Well, there you go. I wanted to play that. I think Stefanik did a great job. And these, all three of these presidents of these colleges apparently went to the same meeting because you can hear the weasel words. Uh, all when it becomes conduct. Well, what does that mean? What's the context? I mean, she, Stefanik even asks that. What's the context? What are you talking about, context? Well, it turns into conduct. What do you mean, con, you know, when they do it? Is that what you're talking about? I mean, it's, it's, uh, it was, it's a very, we got met with our lawyers to learn how to say nothing. That's exactly how that happens. And remember, they were very careful not to say, do they have a right to shout these things? Because they're not asking them if they have a constitutional right to protest and say outrageous things. They're being asked if their code of conduct at their university prohibits that. And that's especially important because all three of these universities that are being questioned have codes of conduct that make all sorts of speech uh, a problem. And they're also places where even a conservative trying to show up and give a talk is considered outrageous conduct. So their speech, I want to say code of conduct because I, I, I think it's more than that. I think it's a, it's a sort of, uh, a police state uh, code of conduct that they have in these places because it's so easy to get someone investigated and uh, in trouble for certain kinds of speech conduct, but not in others. And this is what Stefanik's trying to underline. And she was very smart to talk about their code of conduct, code of conduct. And you notice they didn't want to get into it from the other side because they know what their code of conduct says. And if the question was going to go on longer, I think you could have 
read from their code of conduct about the kind of speech that is considered to be harassment and so forth. And the one answer uh, from, uh, I believe it was the president of Harvard, uh, Professor Gay, uh, she said that, well, if it becomes conduct, it becomes harass- harassment. Well, it, it doesn't have to become conduct to be harassment. Following somebody around and shouting death to a certain group, that by itself is going to be recognized as harassment by pretty much anybody, but apparently not them. So, so now you see, uh, every, almost every day now, we're getting uh, another view into the education system in this country. And every day we're more shocked. And I think every day we think, well, we couldn't be any more shocked. Well, yeah, you can. I'm hoping we don't have any more days where we're more shocked after that, you know, charade that was put on by these people. Uh, and the president of uh, Penn, University of Pennsylvania, McGill, she's uh, was really in it because what you didn't see, and you may have seen it, she's sort of smirking through her answers like she thinks, oh, this is, I'm so much smarter, I'll just dance around this, you know. And, of course, she didn't. She just she made herself look ridiculous uh, by refusing to answer. And then the fact that the ant, all three answers were very similar in context and if it moves into, you know, because under their code of conduct, none of that's required to get in trouble for certain kinds of speech. Didn't have to move into conduct. Making people uncomfortable in most of these colleges is enough to violate the rules of conduct. And I think I would submit that in most cases, shouting for your entire uh, group of people to be eliminated it could make you feel pretty uncomfortable. So... Now you see it, right? Now we, now we see what's going on out there. But, you know, where does all this come from? How did we get to this point? Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of pieces in there. But I was looking back at part of this crazy stuff. Really, I felt like it, it, it really turned the corner. And it was during the Bush years, wasn't it? Where things went from just disagreeing and being upset with uh, your leadership. And, frankly... There was a lot of people who were pretty upset with Clinton on the right, to be fair. But it never really got to the stage of what was going on with George W. Bush. It really started to make a change then. There was just there was a visceral kind of feeling about George W. Bush. And they were really out after him. But I remember thinking, wow, boy, it can't get much worse than this. Oof. Once again, found myself to be naive. Never felt that I was. And that, that's sort of morphed now with Trump. It's now made it somehow okay to be as angry as possible. And it's because we characterize the other side. Well, we don't so much. Uh, the left characterizes conservatives and anybody that disagrees with their opinion, not just as uh, people who, you know, disagree or even saying that they're dumb or, you know, being dismissive like that. They think that they are actively trying to harm the people on the left somehow by having a different opinion. A different opinion seems to be translated into a physical threat. You hear it all the time. I feel unsafe, you know, and this kind of thing. And when you really vilify someone and dehumanize them, as Stefanik said, then it gets very easy to escalate it to the next stage of violence. And we saw that in 2020 with the, the riots. L- look at what happened out there. 
I mean, we hear it all the time comparing it to January 6th, but, I mean, just look at it in, all by itself. Police stations burned down. People were actually killed during these riots. It was horrific, and it was all sort of, well, that's okay because, you know, that kind of violence and murder and looting uh, is uh, accepted by some of these people as a legitimate expression of anger, right, over some sort of injustice. That's tremendously unhealthy and destructive for a society to have people in positions of authority uh, turn a blind eye to that or to say, well, I mean, it's it, we don't want that to happen. But same sort of weasel words we heard out of these college presidents, you know, just walking around the fact that it's not possible for a person that has some kind of moral compass or, as we said earlier, not have some sort of aspect of moral confusion to look at that and say, no, that's just wrong. It's not what you should be doing. It doesn't matter, you know, how you think you've been wronged. And many of these people believe they've been wronged for all sorts of the wrong reasons. And, and we've just decided that this kind of street violence and this heightened rhetoric, uh, this rejection of self-control, uh, people no longer exercise any self-restraint, which we used to think was a good thing, and have a balanced response. Now, the more hysterical you are, somehow that's a badge of honor. And that, that of course, just accelerates this. It creates a cycle. And when it comes to the United States and the West and all that, look at what's being taught in the schools, right? The, the West is, is uh, corrupt that it's uh, stolen its resources from indigenous people. Oh, it's a little unclear exactly how some of that happened, you know, when they asked people to explain it. Exploiting the environment, burning these fossil fuels, and going to, you know, ruin the planet for the next generation, these kids in college. That's, that's how they're be, what they're being told. And so when they go out and they, you know, are, uh, praise Hamas and come up with all of this crazy stuff, they're, they're really saying an expletive against our civilization because they've been now taught that our civilization in the West is terrible, corrupt, oppressive. They didn't know any better and, and they're not being taught any better. They, they have a very thin grasp of science and almost no contextual grasp of history. And because of that, their head can just be filled with anything. And obviously it is. So when you see that and then you couple that with this explosion of self-expression in rage that we've now decided is okay, or we haven't, but apparently the left has, because it's okay because it's in the right context. See, that context thing comes up. Well, it's against Trump. And we all know Trump is the most evil thing that's ever come down the road. And so, gosh... Well, nobody likes to see it when someone's upset, but they have a right to be upset, and this is just what happens. That's the context. And, of course, it's it's completely out of context in terms of what really happens in the world and, and where we are now and where Donald Trump is in terms of what he's done. Look, he's been president once. None of the things that they said would happen, of course, happened. Now, they're going to say they're going to happen again, and they are. And now, now it's, oh, he's mad, he's going to, you know take over, and this will be the last election we have. It's just a tiresome thing. It's dangerous to just keep putting it out there. It's still a tiresome thing.
And when you get to that point, when you paint people to be so bad and as uh, dangerous to you, and their supporters are dangerous to you, well, this is how we end up, especially when we no longer have any sort of uh, comedy in our civilization. I don't mean comedy, C-O-M-E-D-Y. I mean C-O-M-I-T-Y. We don't have any sort of, well, the, the, the sort of reasoned back and forth. There's no expectation of that now. It used to be if you blew up at somebody that people thought less of you. Now if you blow up at some someone, many think that, by golly, they have some righteous rage. And like I said, they, they pick this up from not knowing anything and what they're told. Uh, and you might ask, Rick, do you have any examples of that? Why, yes, I do. You may remember our friend uh, Ibram X. Kandi. I'm not sure what his, if that's his real name or not. Uh, he wrote the, the book uh, on, you know, how everything is pretty much racism. I'm trying to remember the name of the book. But he has a new, of course, uh, Netflix documentary. I don't know how you call this a documentary. Uh, it's called Stamp from the Beginning, which is based on his 2018 book examining the history of anti-black racism. Now, I'm, I'm reading this from uh, a Breitbart article, I guess, yeah. And he received a round of applause after he called out to white people. This is what he said. And I don't much just listen to this as being incredibly irritating. Just listen to this as, does it make any sense? Right? I don't think white people worldwide have really reckoned with how much their own personal identity is shaped by constructions of whiteness. And how that construction of whiteness prevents white people from connecting with humanity, he said. It's whiteness that prevents that. That's gibberish. I mean, it's just repeating the same thing over and over again. It, it's, it's self-serving in the sense that it tries to define itself and explain itself by just reiterating itself. It's what, uh, they called originally in the military, and we still hear it, a self-licking ice cream cone, you know, which sounds kind of strange, but the idea of it was like a self-licking ice cream cone that something exists only for its own benefit and that it just reinforces itself, doesn't get anything from the outside. It created, and it's the only thing it's serving is itself. This is pretty much what we see here. And... What else he said is, when you're not able to see yourself in other human beings, that creates all sorts of problems. But not just societal problems, but personal problems that I think hopefully this film and work will liberate those folks. What? It's liberating all the way around, and I think it will liberate all of us because we've been told a lie about ourselves and other people. And everybody applauded. Once again, that's gibberish. Now, the, time, the title of his book was uh, 2019, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Well, he clearly doesn't know anything about that because his whole world seems to revolve around racism uh, and by categorizing it himself uh, and uh, coming to his uh, coming with his approach to problems from a racist perspective and not just spotting it from somebody else. But he's obsessed with this whiteness, which he cannot and he's been asked this before, and he cannot explain what he means. He falls back to the same thing we read here, which is just reiterating the word and redefining the word by using the word in different contexts. You know, it's like asking somebody to define something and then reiterating that same word over and over again. You know, 
to define it. That that's what he does there. And people are sitting in the audience and they think that eh, yeah, well, that guy's really got it going on. I heard him say some big words. Yeah, he used the word white in like four different ways to explain what he means by whiteness and the problem with whiteness. Never touches on it. And the closest it gets is, uh, I, I guess, that somehow uh, people uh, who are uh, who we would define as white somehow don't see other people uh, uh, in some sort of empathy. I mean, I think I'm filling in things here even he hasn't come up with. And the fact that people are out there applauding this is ridiculous. It's it's another one of these emperor has no clothes issues where are are you applauding because you have a low IQ like he apparently does and it's it's resonating with you or because you think that it is virtue signaling to applaud what he has to say because it sounds bad about your society and that's the way that you show how sophisticated you are is by tearing down your own society. And this is this has happened before. I mean, we see this, you know, where people become so sophisticated and above things and civilized that they degrade their own civilization. You know, it's it's the I'm too good for this. Or as the famous group uh Wright said Fred said, I believe in the eighties, uh, I'm too sexy for my clothes. I think that's the same kind of thinking here. They're too sexy for their own environment, right? And so the, anybody that attacks it, they're going to get on that side and say, oh, yes, I know. It's so droll. Wow. I mean, I don't mean to rail here, but uh, we are living in a time where people have absolutely no appreciation of how we got to where we're at and what we need to do to stay at least in a moderate level of control over our own government and our own standard of living. No idea. It's uh, it's the kind of thing that will be written about in history in 50 or 80 years and with some wondering about how we got there. Because it'll, it's hard to imagine that, once again, people are interested in undermining and destroying their own society that has done nothing but give them a leg up most of the time. Even if you have been in a very bad situation in the United States, if you're one of the poor, especially if you're, you're living in some of these places that have been created by other policies, you're still better off than being poor anyplace else in the world. I'm not saying that's a good thing, that you shouldn't want to change it. But to say that the society that you're living in is the worst... It doesn't make any sense. Anyway, try and make some sense out of it yourself, but but enjoy yourself. (laughs) Don't think too hard. See you next week.